Hey, everybody, it's Andrea. Before we start today's show, I have a super quick announcement to share with all of you. Beginning in April, I'm going to be launching a series of college to career live weekend boot camps to help graduating seniors as well as juniors who are confused about what jobs or careers they might want to pursue when they graduate. So imagine going from confused to confident with at least three different career options you'd be psyched to explore by the end of day one of the boot camp. And then learning the tools, tactics, and the strategies to find those jobs by the end of day two. The boot camp is live and it's led by me over Zoom. And you can learn more about it at College to Career Academy. That's college, the number two, career dot academy. Or you can just look me up on LinkedIn and check out the featured section of my LinkedIn page. I can't imagine a better graduation gift for the college students in your life. Thanks so much for listening, and I know you're going to enjoy my next incredible guest. Hi there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about what it's like to work in the coffee industry, maybe even starting your own coffee business, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest is the co-founder of Birch Coffee Roaster, which is a New York City-based coffee roaster and chain of cafes offering specialty coffees from around the world. But before I introduce you to Paul Schlater, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's weekly newsletter that comes out bright and early on Monday mornings, and it's got unique firsthand insights into dozens of different careers from the people, the professionals who are actually working in them. And it is super easy to do. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign up box is right there. Now, my Sumatra drinking specialty coffee lovers, please grab a mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Paul Schlater, the co-founder of New York City-based specialty coffee roasting and brewing Birch Coffee. Paul is one of those aspiring entrepreneurs who'd known pretty much from the time he was a little guy that this is what he wanted to do, to start a business. But his parents had another idea for him and they encouraged him. They coaxed him into going to college and enrolling in another interest he had, which is acting. And so Paul enrolled in the American Musical and Dramatic Academy. And like so many other aspiring actors, Paul continued working in restaurants to pay the bills after graduation. But unlike his theater peers, Paul actually preferred the hustle of hospitality to the bustle and bright lights of Broadway. And it was the smell of freshly roasted organic Sadamo coffee that opened Paul's eyes to the fact that maybe there was another profession that 
would be interesting to him. So when his buddy Jeremy Lyman said he was thinking about starting a specialty coffee company from the ground up, Paul's response, I'm in. And today he oversees all of Birch's green coffee purchasing that's buying from farms all over the world at a minimum Q grade of 84. Specialty coffee starts at 80. We wonk out on all this, my friends, so stay tuned. In 2015, Birch opened a 4,000 square foot roasting plant where Paul roasts all of their coffees in small batches. Prior to the coronavirus hitting New York City and as it hit cities all over the U.S. and around the world in March of 2020, Birch had actually expanded to 13 shops and had more than 90 employees. It since had to scale back. And as of this interview, which we did towards the end of September 2020, Birch has seven cafes open all across New York. And it has a continued ongoing commitment to raising awareness for specialty coffee as an industry. This is a real life story, my friends, of grit and resilience in action. And boy, does Paul open up. Paul, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? Andrea, I am caffeinated and I'm ready to go. Let's go. Awesome. Yes. So I have to ask you, because come on, co-founder of Birch Coffee. Yes. What have you been brewing up recently? What's your favorite? I know you said cold brew has been kind of your go-to, but when you're kind of hankering for a hot coffee, what's your favorite? That's a fair question. And actually, I know for certain you've heard this before, because I've heard interviews where you've heard this before. But asking a coffee person which coffee is their favorite is like asking, so which child is the best one? Which one (laughs) would you like? And that's very much the case. Depending on the time of day, I will gravitate towards a Brazil, something from our partners in Carmo Gaminas. I will uh, get a have a coffee there in the morning just because it's balanced, low acidity, very easy to drink, still with some complexity. And in the afternoon, I like to have a yoga chef, coffee from Ethiopia, just because bright, acidic, floral, fruity, much more complex and a lot brighter. And I like brighter coffees later in the day. Yeah. And honestly, I have no idea how that translates to taste, but we can probably touch on that later in the interview. Yeah, absolutely. We'd love to. Before we get into what you do as a roaster extraordinaire, I thought it might be useful for our viewers and our listeners to get a better sense of what Birch Coffee is. What is it for those who haven't been to New York City, haven't tried a Birch Coffee? I know that you are actually online so people can order it, but what Mm -hmm. sets Birch coffee, especially your cafes, apart from the bazillion other coffee institutions, coffee cafes that are all over the city? Our commitment to service and to getting your order correct 100% of the time. I like to kind of to set the table this way. When you go to a restaurant, right, and you order a meal, ordinarily you're, you're given a menu. No matter, no matter the restaurant, you're given a menu, your order is taken, food is brought, you eat your food, the food is removed, and you pay and then you leave, right? 
there should be some conversation with an individual, perhaps in that, in that space, I'm going to make an assumption that what defines the best place that you've eaten at from the worst place that you've eaten at is the level of service within that mm. space, right? So for us, making sure that you are taking care of 100%, 100% of the time is that's the goal. And if that doesn't happen, then we haven't done our job. So that is the, the, the key definer with, with us. And what about the vibe in a birch mm-hmm. coffee shop? So as you would, you would see in the, the majority of, of coffee shops, there's a focus on great music. There is a, a focus on you know, music that sets the tone for what's happening in, in that space. And even if it's raining, we'll have on specific music. If it's you know, bright, we'll have on specific music. So that being one element of it, and then there will be someone smiling, greeting you when you walk in. And again, 100% of the time, that will be the case when you're coming into our stores or we haven't done our job. That is beautiful. That is wonderful. I love it. What was it about coffee, Paul, that Mm -hmm attracted you and Jeremy into this space? Like, why wasn't it bagels or a bakery? I know that you went to a coffee convention in DC Mm -hmm. called Coffee Fest that kind of rocked your world, but you were already kind of moving in that direction. Yeah. Well, Jeremy had been working on a coffee shop concept for, for some period of time. And he was digging in, looking to, he wanted to, to make it happen. I, I was looking to, to start a business. And it didn't really matter to me what that was. I wanted to be a part of something bigger than what I was doing. And, you know, I remember going up to Jeremy and I, I kind of like to make this, to kind of draw this parallel. When you're a kid and you, you have a friend that's going to go to the beach, but you really want to go to the beach, you go, hey, can I go to the beach with you? That's kind of what I did with Jeremy. He said, you're, you're starting a business? Hey, would you like someone to start a business with you? And he was kind enough to completely say, nope, I'm good. Thank you. <laughs> right. First, he kind of blew first, you off. <laughs> first, first few times, it's like, nah, he's like, I got this. Uh, and then one day that shifted. And, and then we just started you know, digging in you know, further together. Coffee specifically was interesting because I had recently started going to a, a small coffee chain in, in New York City and I had never had specialty coffee before and I had it there and it was fantastic and I wanted more of that and I wanted to be a part of that. And then as as you said, going to to DC, the you know kind of the white light or the aha moment was getting a an Ethiopian Amaro Gallo served on a I don't know if you've ever seen Starbucks bought the patent to these. And then they now they have them in all of their stores. And it's called a clover. And it's a single, it's a single cup brewer, but it's 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 like the size of a desk. It's really large. And it makes no sense economically for like small businesses. But I had this Amaro Gallo served on this this clover, and it was hands down the best cup of coffee that I had to, to that period of time. And that was it. I was like, this is what I want to do. I want to understand why this tastes so good. And I want to do this better. And that's it. This is what I want to do. And that was, that was it for me. I was, I was off of the races and I just, I could not, I could not get that out of my head. What about a specialty coffee? We hear that term thrown around. Yeah. 
what is a specialty coffee? What makes a particular coffee? I was about to call it a bean, and it's not a bean. It's a the coffee fruit. Yeah, well, a fruit and then the seed inside the fruit, right? Right. So yeah, you know, you you are correct, and as as I'm sure you're aware, so there are there are Q graders, which are the like an equivalent coffee equivalent to a sommelier, right? And a Q grader will be able to establish a coffee that is a specialty grade or a non-specialty grade. And a specialty grade starts at a score of 80. Everything 80 and above, specialty grade coffee. So if we're getting into like the minutia of this, that is technically the what would make a specialty store is, is a store that is purchasing that level of coffee, right? Coffees that are a much higher caliber than what you would say you'd find in, in most grocery store aisles. And I'm so glad you brought up the grocery store aisle because I admit it, I used to drink the kind of coffee that you used a can opener <laughs> to break the totally. seal, you know, and you just put whatever, eight scoops of it in, pour water, and you drink this black stuff. What is the difference between that and what you roast at your roastery at Birch Coffees? I think your facility is like 1,400 square feet or something like that. I think you're... Yep. It's a a big space. 4,000 square feet. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And so going back to the grade. So most of the coffee that's in the tin can. So you have, you have two different genius of coffee, right? So you have Arabica and Robusta. So Robusta is a inexpensive, requires much less maintenance as far as the trees are, are concerned. And that is grown at lower elevations. It re- again, it requires much less fuss and produces a lot of coffee. Arabicas are the opposite. They require a great deal of attention. They are have to be grown at higher elevation, and they grow a smaller yield. So you have these kind of two competing varietals. A lot of the coffee that can be used for for those cans will be a either a blend of Arabica and Robusta or very heavy Robusta, which is again a much lower quality of coffee, and the coffees that are, you know, absolutely specialty and are going to be Arabica, I mean, period. So those would be your main difference there. And then a step further is we're going to get into, you know, a very fine point of grading within that specialty range. We tend to purchase coffees that fall within and starting at like an, an 84, which doesn't sound like a giant leap from between an 80 and an 84. But in terms of price and in terms of quality, it very much is. Got it. So, Paul, could you walk us through the process of roasting coffee? So you get the green mm-hmm. beans yep. that have been processed different ways. Yep. And then what do you do? So roasting is... At its core is, you can think of roasting as like a cooking process. So you have three stages within roasting. The the first stage is going to be drying. And during that drying phase, you're breaking down the coffee, you're removing the moisture that's still within the, the bean, as you said, the green coffee that it starts. And 
you begin to to pull all of that out, break it down, and then you start to see it heating. the The coffee will will heat up and change change a color. And once it changes color, we're going to be entering the the next phase, which is like the yellowing or the the mired phase, the sugar browning phase, right? And so, at that point, we are beginning the we'll say the beginning of, of a cooking stage of of the coffee, and then that goes for another uh, depending on on your roaster that mired phase can last anywhere from 3 to to 4 minutes and then during that period of time you're going to start building up a lot of energy think of popping popcorn you're building up energy building up energy building up energy then that energy has nowhere else to go and it explodes and then we enter the the crack and, and development so once we get into the first crack, that is when any roaster essentially will be putting their signature on the coffee itself. And it's the last stage before you stop roasting the coffee. And again, it just depends on the type of roaster that you're using. But your, your finishing time is going to be anywhere from 9 to 13 minutes, roughly. Yeah, thank you for that. I have been inside a roaster. I haven't had the pleasure of visiting your roastery, but I was at one, gosh, it's about a year ago. I was up in the Berkshires in Western Massachusetts and I went to the Barrington Coffee Roastery and I took a cupping class and I was actually the only student. (laughs) So I had the two roasters who gave me a private class. And I just remember seeing the roasting machine and that little clear window glass that you could look through and it did look like popcorn and it happened so quickly and in the meantime there's that big arm that's kind of moving the coffee around yeah yeah it was super cool and then of course i got to try the coffee after it had been roasted and it was just off the charts you mentioned being a q grader and i did Mm -hmm. listen to another interview you gave. And I was really blown away by the fact that the just the exam itself to get a certification to be a Q grader is like six days long. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it depends on depends on the course that you take. But yes, I mean, that's that is what it is. Yeah. I mean, there's obviously there's a reason behind it, right? And so the, the main reason behind it is that there's there's a lot of sensory work and the level of sensory work that you did. Were you to do that all in a day? It, I mean, no one passes because your taste buds are blown out and you have no capacity to to evaluate anything after you do your salt, sweet, bitter. It's just like, it's not going to be possible to taste anything else. And so, or are you doing your, your organic acid test? Like it's just, there are elements which will just knock you out. Plus you have to do those written things as, as well. So yeah, it's interestingly an involved process. One that had I known the level <laughs> of involvement going into it, I don't know that I, that I, and I actually tell people now, it's like when they say, no, I want to be a Q grid. It's like, yeah, you really want to think about that one because it is not easy and it has a very high fail rate, very high fail rate. I remember when I was taking the, my cue that I called my wife after my first day. I said, so a couple things, one, hundred percent going to fail. And two, I should probably leave this industry. There is no place for me here in this at all. I mean, it was just, I was just 
crushed emotionally after the first day because it was it's just it's very challenging. I do know in talking to other Q graders that this is a pretty shared experience that I had during that process. But yeah, it was rough. I, I did pass, fortunately, but it was <laughs> it was it was something to not say the something least. you want to go through again. No, I'm good. I'm fine. <laughs> I, there's, there's recertifications you have to do every three years, but it's you don't have to retake the entirety, which is okay with me. That is incredible. You have to get recertified. Yeah, but it's more just to to calibrate to make sure that you're at your same abilities, right? I mean, because again, you're given the responsibility and you're you're given the ability to to grade specialty coffee. And if if I'm sitting down with people saying, "Well, this coffee is X," and they're saying, "Well, you're wrong," and we can objectively see why that's the case, then we need to be able to break that down. So, there's some level of subjectivity to grading, but most of it is, is pretty black and white, for lack of a better term. I know through this whole process, not when you and Jeremy first decided to start a business together, but later, you actually discovered that you have an unbelievable tasting ability. How did that yeah. come to your awareness? Was it when you started studying to be a Q grader? Yeah, it was, well, it was when I first started cupping coffee with friends at a shop at the time, realizing that I could, I could taste flavor notes. And I was able to, to identify what was happening, especially as the cup cooled and being able to identify, you know, acidity and body and, and being able to, to, you know, quickly understand the, the, the difference there. And this is where my business partner, and I, he's, he's much more of a, this tastes good, this doesn't taste good. And he leaves everything else to, as far as nuance is concerned, up to me, which is it's a great part of our coffee relationship because uh, it's something that, that he knows he just doesn't, doesn't have. And there's, it's really great to be able to, just to speak to that part specifically, having that kind of lack of ego, really, especially as business owners, helps to kind of break down walls in, in other areas. So going into it, going, I'm not good at this is great for us and for our working relationship to really to know where our, our strengths and liabilities are. Yeah, I'm sure it is. Now, another thing that you are in charge of, Paul, is the purchasing of Birch's green coffee. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? And what has it involved for you? That is one of the best parts of what I do. I, I find such joy and feel privilege, such privilege in being able to do it because it allows me to go to countries of origins to work with producers and purchase coffee, which in my, my very wildest of dreams, I, I would not have imagined that I would be able to do. And so you know, being able to travel and meet incredible individuals who have a much greater depth of knowledge and are able to help educate me on the practices of best farming and why these are best practices, it's second to none. So I take great pleasure in, in that, that part of my job, to say the least. I am sure. I, I just recently, I don't know if you had a chance to listen to it, interviewed an American guy who got super interested in Nicaragua and in yeah, debt relief in school. Did you listen to yeah. it? Oh, and, yeah. And Absolutely. that, uh, you know, Green Mountain coffee growers mm -hmm. and just the huge depth of knowledge that these yeah. farmers have oh, because yes. it's been in their family for generations oh, and right. how much care and pride they yep. put into producing such high grade coffee. Yep. Absolutely. No, that was that was a great interview. And I think that 
what's coming from that, like in, in part to, to, to speak to that interview was you're seeing this new social dynamic taking place, particularly that's happening, at least that I'm seeing within states and how, how we're purchasing coffees is that we're looking much further down the chain to know, you know where our dollars are having impact and having those kind of difficult conversations you know, within our industry because where coffee started, what people were getting paid is it's borderline criminal what people were getting paid that there was such a a lack of care to the the pickers and the producers and the fact that the c market is is what it is it's it's disheartening and so we purchase coffee differently knowing where our dollars are are being spent and where that impact is being felt the most in the most positive ways and because of that and because of you know interactions like like this you know getting the word out the hope is that there will be this continuation of a conversation around this because the other interview we spoke about, it's like people should not be paying $2 for a cup of coffee. And in our store, you won't. <laughs> but you know, you very much should be paying what you're paying for a, a glass of wine, a glass of whiskey. I mean, thinking it's, it should be in that same caliber because it requires such effort to produce this coffee. Yeah. By the way, I need to correct myself. It's Gold, Gold Mountain, Mountain Coffee Growers, yeah. not Green Mountain. I'm so I sorry about that. Because I felt, because I felt like I, was, I didn't want to be like correct and be like a that, that kind oh, of guy. Oh no! But, please, yeah. please, yes. No, I I realized it like within seconds of of having said it. Okay, Paul, let's flash back very quickly to when you were in college. You attended the American Musical and Dramatic Academy to missed, study yeah. theater. Yes. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated? Andrea, this is a good question. I, no, <laughs> no, I, I didn't. The idea of auditioning afforded me. I had no desire at all to do anything that resembled auditioning. There are people that are bred for, for that kind of work. I am not one of those people. And I learned that pretty immediately when I got to school. I was like, nope, not for me. This is not going to work. There was a level of encouragement that I had from my family that, you know, this, you should really, you know, I should really dig into this. You should really, you know, pursue this. And the, the passion for it, for the business side of it just wasn't there. It just didn't exist. So I, I hammered my way through the school. It was more out of a, that it was a sense of obligation but it was a bit obligatory. So finished and knew that, that it wasn't really going to go anywhere. So, Well, I love the way you use the word encouragement. That there was a level <laughs> no, of encouragement yeah. by your it family. Was. It, it, it wasn't was. like pressure or anything no. like that, Paul? No, no I, I, appreciate, I actually appreciate you asking that because I, I'm, I'm very happy to discuss that. My, my family, I very much had the, I, I would imagine, the opposite of what many performers experience, which is parents going, you shouldn't do this. This is a bad idea. We can talk about something that I did have that experience with a little bit later, but it wasn't performing. And I think that's very interesting. My parents were wholly encouraging that I should pursue this. They were, they were gung-ho, you should do this. And so it was this, this feeling of, oh my goodness, I, I don't want to let people down. I want, you know, I want people to be, you know, to, to have, you know, pride in what I'm, you know, trying to do. So I just, I mustered through it. And, you know, I don't, I certainly don't regret doing it. The experience that I gained from it helped me to better be able to 
have these conversations, being able to stand still on a stage and speak is something that I use often when I'm speaking to our team at a large event. So there absolutely were things that are invaluable gains that I got from it, just not in the way that I had thought. Absolutely. And actually, you anticipated what my next question was going to be, and you already answered it, which is awesome. (laughs) No, it is awesome because I didn't realize until fairly recently that only 27% of college graduates actually go into a field related to their major. It is far more common. So 75% of us never go into a career in our major. And yet there are really valuable skills that you're learning both in the classroom and in your case on the stage that you're able to bring with you into whatever careers you go into. So I usually ask this question a little bit later, Paul, but considering what's happening right now in the world, we're doing this interview towards the latter part of September 2020. And of course, the coronavirus has affected probably every single state in this country. And New York City, we know, was hit super, super hard. And the question is, If you would share a time in your professional life when you struggled and maybe you even failed. And I ask that question of people at all levels of their career because I want our young viewers and our young listeners to appreciate that there will be ups and downs Mm. in their careers. It just so happens that the coronavirus is something that's affecting all of us here in the United States and around the world at the same time. So I don't know if this is the experience you want to speak to, Paul. I know you also started Birch right in the middle of the 2008-2009 recession, which had to be super challenging, but most importantly, how you persevered, how you are persevering, and a lesson maybe that you're taking away from the process. There's a lot to unpack there, Andrea. I will tie it into a failure because it is something that I've questioned since, you know, in New York, we were obviously, as, as you alluded to that, you know, very much the epicenter of how this you know, pandemic first came into the United States and, and has since ravaged our country. And, you know, in March, we got on a phone call, my CFO, you know, Jeremy and myself got on a phone call and, you know, Jesse, our CFO said, we have to put people on furlough and we have to close the stores. We're, we're going to have to do that. And, you know, Jeremy and I knew that we were going to have to do that. And it very much was laid at, at that I was going to be the one kind of leading these conversations. Um, it's just something that I'm able to do for, for better or for worse. I'm able to have these conversations. So I brought everybody onto a, a FaceTime call and began to let everyone know that we were going to have to close the stores and we were going to be laying people off, putting people on furlough, and that we, it was for an indefinable period of time. Very much felt like a failure. Very much had that sense that our business is lost and that there won't be a recovery from this. And it was a frightening time. And because of the uncertainty of what was happening and how the, the pandemic was playing out and just the, the enormity of the way the infection was moving through the city and people were dying, it was this, this seeming that 
we're most likely not going to reopen. So in these moments of what was feeling like, like failure to what you had alluded to earlier, you know, Jeremy and I started this in 2009 and we opened our first store and it was during the, you know, there were a lot of pink slip parties happening then. And Jeremy and I were, were talking in the early days of the, the pandemic of what can we do? How can we be of service? How can we one, bring in revenue into our store, into it, like just our roasting facility now? And how can we be of service? And so we had a discussion about using our truck and bringing it to hospitals and providing coffee for service workers at hospitals. And that's what we did. So we put on a, a thing on our website where you could click and you could purchase coffee for workers at hospitals. And we sold a lot of coffee and we were able to fund our truck. And it was mostly led by Jeremy to go to the, the, these hospitals. I was all led by Jeremy going to the, to the hospitals. And he would go set up with another one of our, our team members we were able to bring back and they would serve hospital workers for several hours. And there was a sense of connection that was so needed in that moment. Because as a city, it was, it was really dark, Andrea. It was a really dark period of time for us. And to see smiles on people's faces when they would sip their coffee, not when they were having their masks on, it was motivating. And it, it got us digging into, okay, so we can evolve through this. And as a result, when we were seeing that we were going to be able to reopen our stores, but that our business model was going to have to change. And so Jeremy and I discussed how we were going to have to change our, our structure, our business structure, in order to live in this period of time that, that we're in now. And as a result, we've, we've evolved our, our business. We're changing some positions within the organization so that more responsibilities can be going to our store leads now, which they're wanting. And that's great. So we're very fortunate for, for the team that we have. And what I'm hopeful for, Andrea, and, and this is obviously yet to be seen, is that this will allow us to be a better evolved business in the, in the long term, because we saw some areas where we were heavy and should have done things differently. And are now given an opportunity to pivot and change, have discussions with people, and you know make some moves within our, our stores that we otherwise wouldn't have done. So I, I do see something very positive coming from this, but it has taken a great deal of trudging through some mud over the last seven months to kind of you know see that this is going in a will be going in a, in a better direction uh, longer term. Well, thank you so much for sharing that, Paul. I'm curious. I know that you're really still in it right now, mm -hmm. but if you could kind of pull up and look down on the situation, what do you think a lesson is that our viewers and our listeners can take away from this? The ability to pivot I mean, that being the one, the, the bigger one, because of course, we never thought we would be dealing with the pandemic, right? We also didn't think we would ever have, you know, 13 stores, which is what we had before we, we shut down. And so to be able to, to take the time on something that is 
not working and being able to refashion it, I think is a, it's a really unique opportunity. And being able to do that with a, with a small business, I am hopeful this will be one of my greater lessons that I'm learning in, in building this business. Because if we, if we don't get that takeaway, well, then I think that we, we, may, have, we may have missed a, a really you know, great opportunity for ourselves. Well, I, I think you will. I yeah. have faith. I have faith. I have one other question. And then depending upon how you answer this, I may <laughs> ask one final question after that, Paul. But if you could go back to college and yeah. do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, hmm. what advice would you give yourself? I would, I would listen to my gut, Andrea, <laughs> because I think that early on, I knew that what I was doing wasn't necessarily going to, to fulfill me long term. But I, I want to believe that I was trusting of the process to see that through. So I, I don't know that I, would, that I would change anything because I'm eternally grateful for how everything has evolved because it, it, it absolutely has very much for a reason. And I don't know that I would change anything. I think that I would like to say to myself to just trust my gut a little bit more. I think that's what I would say. Yeah. So my final question is it relates to how your family reacted when you told yeah. them what you wanted to do, that you wanted to start a coffee business with yeah. your buddy, Jeremy. Mm -hmm. And I think putting that in the context of what some of our young viewers and listeners are going through right now, who may be in their senior year of college, thinking through like, ah, what am I going to do now when I graduate? I think kind of wrapping that all together. Yeah. Could you share that reaction of your family? And I think it relates very much to trusting your gut, how to shut out the noise. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. My father, who is one of my, my fiercest advocates, he was very much opposed to Jeremy and I starting this in, in two, when we were talking in 2000, he said, this is what we're going to do. He was like, bad idea. And, and maybe he wasn't as flippant as I just was, but he was not on board and said, this is not the right time, would strongly advise against this. And I said, okay, well, thanks. We're, we're going to do this. And again, to your point, I believed in Jeremy and I believed in myself because I knew what our objective was. And our objective was to be of service. Our objective was rooted in something bigger than us. And so for that reason, I felt confident that we had a shot to, to make something happen. And worst case, I would definitely learn and take something away from this. And at best, I'd be able to sit and talk to Andrea Koppel and have a conversation about the, you know, the things that I've learned. So I knew that there was something that was to be strongly gained by, by taking that risk. And I firmly believe we made the right call there. Well, I was going to say on this note of Arabica roasted Q grade 89, <laughs> let's go to let's go to 92 92 let's really kick it up there let's yes. just go to 92 yeah i don't think it could get better than that 
note to end on. I want to thank you so much, Paul, for your authenticity, your your candor, and your generosity for sharing your journey with me and the T4C community. I have no doubt because of those values that you pointed out there at the end that Birch Coffee is going to continue to grow and thrive. And we're going to come back and do this conversation again in the next year or two. And you're going to tell me about the awesome new heights that you have hit as a result of this very challenging experience. I look forward to that, Andrea, very much. Very much look forward to that. Yeah. And thank you for your time. Thank you for, for having me on. This has been an absolute uh, honor and privilege for me. So thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.